Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of once saved, always saved. Today's program is a continuation where I'm going through several verses in the scriptures that people will usually bring up when discussing this topic. And in today's program... I'm going to begin by addressing 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 through 8. Beginning in verse 5, it says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Now, in this passage, what people will normally do is they will look at this and they will say that you should examine yourself because you might not be a Christian, or maybe you were qualified as a Christian and then became disqualified in some way to the extent where you were not a Christian. Now, first I'm going to deal with the question of qualification or disqualification. I'll deal with that first. Beginning in verse 6, it says, But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. But then if you continue to the end of verse 7, it says, Though we may seem disqualified. Now, you've got two issues here. The first issue is that he declares, Paul, who is writing this, he declares that we are not disqualified, referring to himself and those who he was distinguishing between himself and others who he was expecting would read this letter, that there might be a differentiation in the sense that there might be some differences that maybe some of the people who will be reading his letter are not qualified. Maybe they truly are not saved. So the first issue is, is that he establishes his confidence that he is not disqualified. And then the second issue is that he says that we may seem disqualified. Now, under what criteria would a person use in order to say that someone seems to be disqualified? Well, in general, people use the criteria of sin. Is there any sin in the life of Paul? Is there any sin in the lives of any of the people who would be classified as we in this passage? Chances are, if the individuals who are reading this letter have any reasonable knowledge of these people, to include the Apostle Paul, I'm confident that they would be able to say, yeah, I think that these people sin on occasion. I think that they do that which is evil on occasion, that it does happen. And so if that is the criteria to determine whether a person is qualified or disqualified, whether they are saved or lost, if that is their criteria, well, then it shouldn't be long in anybody's life before sin is discovered. 
and a disqualification occurs because of the sin, because of the penalty for sin, considering the wages of sin is death. If that's the case, then that would be the means by which a person can be disqualified. But that is not what Paul says here. What he says in verse 5 is that the qualification to determine if a person is saved or not is not determined by whether or not a person commits sin, whether they have sin in their life or how they deal with it. The criteria that he defines in verse 5 is that Jesus Christ is in you or he's not. Either he is in you or he isn't in you. That is the criteria. What this means is, according to the gospel that I defined in the previous programs, is that if Jesus is in you, then that is another way of saying that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you and you have been made alive because of the presence of the Spirit of God. The presence of Jesus Christ is equivalent. You are alive because of the life of God within you that can be described as either the Holy Spirit or Jesus. Either way, there is a clear definition here, a clear definition that the qualification or disqualification is going to be determined not by the existence of sin. It is going to be determined by whether or not Christ is in you. And the criteria for Christ to be in you is not complicated. The criteria is simple. All you have to do is embrace the forgiveness of sins and receive the Holy Spirit as the free gift that it is, that he has offered. Once you have received the free gift of the Holy Spirit, there's no way to lose the Holy Spirit because of the complete forgiveness of sins. He died for the sins of the world so that there would be no sin that would be held against an individual that would result in the disqualification, that would result in the separation between man and God, a man who has been born again. So this is what I want you to understand. I want you to consider this. I really want you to consider the definition of the gospel. You must then use that in order to define qualifications. Once you accomplish that, then you can read this passage in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 through 8, in a different way. You can read this from the point of view that the Apostle Paul confronts the Corinthians, confronts the people who he is expecting to read this. He confronts them and encourages them to examine themselves to determine if they have some degree of confidence that Jesus Christ is in them or not. You examine yourself. He proclaims with great confidence that he and the others who are with him are not disqualified. They have confidence that Jesus Christ is in them, according to the gospel that he was proclaiming. So he is encouraging these people to examine themselves, to have confidence, to effectively determine, to some degree, whether or not Jesus Christ is in them. Now, how would they do that? Well, he doesn't give the precise instructions that they can follow in order to determine whether Christ is in them or not. I personally believe that this is a question that can only be answered by the individual who is raising the question for themselves. I don't think that I or anyone can evaluate someone else to determine if they are saved or not. I don't believe that that can be accomplished. Unless, of course, somebody openly declares that they simply are not a Christian, well, then that's easy. They testify against themselves. 
This is not something that we can do in order to accomplish anything. This is something that every individual will have to do for themselves, and I can give some direction concerning that, but I certainly will not be able to testify on behalf of someone else to convince them that they are saved or not saved. I am not given that power. I have not been given that authority. I don't think the Lord will share that with anyone. That will remain something between himself and his individual children. So how can a person consider having some confidence? I think that we can consider a few things. It might be of assistance or could potentially help. One thing we can do is have a clear understanding of the gospel and trust in the truth that he has revealed concerning that. If a person will recognize the truth of the gospel, they will trust their God, then that person should have some degree of confidence that Jesus Christ is in them just because of the definition of the gospel and the promise of God. They should be able to hold on to the promise of God. But beyond that, I would expect there to be a little bit more. To some extent, at least, I would expect that to be the case. The most common way that I have found people getting some sense of confirmation, being able to discern that they have Jesus Christ within them, usually happens when people are reading the Scriptures. They know what it's like to read the Scriptures without the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. They understand what that's like. They know what that's about. And they know what it's like to read through the Scriptures and not understand a word that's written there, effectively. However, when the Holy Spirit dwells within a person, when Jesus Christ is in a person, there will be times when he will speak to a person in the depths of their heart and illuminate something in the scriptures while they are reading it. This is a common experience. I'm not saying that this always has to happen. I'm saying that this is common enough that, in my opinion, this will give a person a comparative opportunity to be able to compare what it is like to read through the scriptures, not understanding a word recorded there, and reading through the scriptures, and having an understanding, seeing things that they did not see before, recognizing that it must be Jesus himself who revealed something to them, who manifested some truth to them, using the scriptures in order to convey something to them personally. At that time, I believe there is an opportunity for a person to have confidence that Jesus Christ is in them. If they want to use their sin, if they want to use their behavior, there will be many opportunities to be able to say that it is unlikely that a person is saved if we use sin as the criteria. But if that is the criteria, then no one will be saved. No one will be qualified. That's why there has to be different criteria. And when you consider alternative criteria that I believe he has established according to the New Covenant, then there are other promises that we can leverage in order to have an understanding. For example, the Lord said that eternal life is knowing him, knowing the one true God and the one who he had sent. When you grow in a knowledge of him that is clearly an indication that the Lord himself is speaking to you, because you have confidence that that would require a divine revelation to see what you are seeing, then this can be an opportunity for that. I'm only giving you one example that a person might use in order to examine themselves. You could make it simpler. You could just simply say that there were people who were reading this letter 
who might not have known anything about what it means to have Jesus Christ in them. They may simply have not known that this is what qualifies an individual as being a true believer. They might believe that all you have to do is believe that Jesus is the Messiah, be baptized in water, and follow the law. There were a lot of people who Paul interacted with who did believe that. There were many people in the churches who, in my opinion, showed plenty of evidence that they were not real believers. Why would that be so much of a surprise? Consider the churches that you have access to today. When you go into those churches, do you ever encounter anyone who you know is not a Christian, who might even tell you that they are not really a Christian, or who know nothing about Christ in you, but they know all about trying to live a holy life? Those kinds of people are good candidates for people who are disqualified and need to examine themselves. They need to examine their understanding of the gospel. They need to examine their condition with regards to being spiritually dead or spiritually alive. They need to examine these things and determine if they have confidence that they are qualified as someone who is a Christian or not. And if they are not, then they should follow the admonition that Paul gives here, repent and be saved. If there are people like that who exist today, and of course there are lots of people like that, if you don't believe me, you just need to get out a little bit more often. You will encounter people like that. Then why would it be so difficult to consider that there were people like this in the early church? From what I can tell, reading the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there were people who, in my opinion, would not be saved, but they were a part of the church. They were a part of the congregation. In 1 John, John said something about this as well. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 17 through 19, beginning in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. It's his opportunity. He took the opportunity in order to express what he saw, that he could tell that there were people who claimed to be a part who were fellowshipping with them as if they were apart, but they weren't. They left, because eventually, who they really are will be made manifested. He who does the will of God abides forever. What is the will of God? The will of God can be described in two ways. It can be described as an inheritance that was defined and has been given to us as a result of his death, a will goes into effect after a person dies. We have received an inheritance. When we receive the inheritance of the Holy Spirit and all that is included with the Holy Spirit, we will abide in God forever. In addition to that, you could say that the will of God that we are to do is we are to believe. It was his desire, it is his desire, that we believe the truth concerning what he accomplished, who he is, and who the Messiah is. That is his desire. That is his directive. That is his will. If a person will respond, then they will believe the truth 
They will be saved. They will abide with him forever. But what I want you to understand concerning verse 19 is just because people are in a church, just because they esteem to be Christians, they can even be in leadership positions. It does not necessarily mean that they are absolutely saved. Because in most cases, you don't have to be saved in order to be a part of a church. You don't have to be saved in order to be in a leadership position in a church. All you have to do is talk the talk, walk the walk, don't offend people, integrate within the culture reasonably well, be nice to folks, and eventually you will have a place in that community. But if you're going to be saved, if you're going to be resurrected, well, that's a decision that God will make, and you're not going to be able to fool him. You can fool and deceive all kinds of people. But when it comes to the living God, he will only save those who he believes have met the criteria well. He is a good judge concerning these things, and I have confidence that he will make good decisions when it comes to these kinds of questions. And so you need to consider this when going through individual passages in the scriptures. There are many of them. I certainly cannot address all of them. I am only referring to a few in order to help you have the tools, have the understanding that you need in order to be able to approach the other verses that I'm not going to refer to because the principles are always the same. The fundamentals are always the same. And this is something that you have to consider. You have to understand and apply. And that is that not everyone who is referred to in the scriptures, not everyone to whom these scriptures are written to are going to be saved. Not everyone. Most of them, I would expect, but not all of them. And the writers knew it. That's why they wrote in the ways that they did. Paul wrote many letters in a way that he would be speaking to those who truly were unbelievers, who were disqualified, in order to reach out to those who were listening, knowing that they needed to be saved. Continuing into Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 to 26. Beginning in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, in verse 21, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now consider that list, and I'm sure that we could add a few more things to that list. Consider this list. He says that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are considered to be the works of the flesh. And he says, if you do these things, you're not going to make it. You could say that that is criteria. That is official criteria to determine if a person is going to be saved or if they are not going to be saved. But this is the point. The point is that there is no one who will ever be saved if this is the list, because everyone will violate or do these things on some occasion in their life experience. And so if this is the criteria, then you will never, ever inherit the kingdom of God. It will simply not happen. This is why there's going to have to be some different criteria. 
Why does he put this in here in Galatians chapter 5? Well, first of all, he does say in verse 18 that you are not under the law. You should have noticed that if you read in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Well, if you're not under the law, then why are you concerned about all of these items that are definitely descriptions of the law? If you're not under the law, then why is it that a person is being evaluated by this? Well, a person will be evaluated by this if they don't believe that they are not under the law. Are there people like that? Of course there are. They're everywhere. Lots of people do not believe that they have been fully, completely set free from the law, and so this does apply to them. If you have not let go of the law, then that means, by default, that you have some intention of inheriting the kingdom of God because you are obedient, because you do not do all of these things. But because you do, you need to recognize that if you are under the law, you are hopeless. You are helpless. You will never inherit the kingdom of God, so you must be set free from the law, which means that you are going to have to enter into something else so that you are led by the Spirit, not led by the law. Verse 18 again, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You have to be led by the Spirit, which means you have to be resurrected by the Spirit so that the Spirit dwells within you and can lead you and guide you because you have been made alive, because you now have a relationship with the Holy Spirit so that he can now lead you, he can now guide you outside of the law. If you continue to read into verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In verse 24 he says, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You don't crucify the flesh because of your enthusiasm or because of your conviction or your commitment or your surrender. You crucify the flesh. The flesh gets crucified because you rest in the complete forgiveness of sins and you are resurrected by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. What that accomplishes is that you are effectively made alive in Christ and you become dead to the world. That's what it means to crucify the flesh. It means to kill it. It means to no longer recognize that it is alive, but instead your spirit has been made alive. You have been changed. You have been transformed. There is nothing wrong with the passions and desires as long as they are not fulfilled through the indulgence of the flesh in ways that are considered to be sin. We can have passions. We can have desires. That's not the problem. The problem is is that if the flesh is going to be crucified, if it's going to be put to death, it's going to have to be put to death by you exchanging your old life for his new life. There is going to have to be an exchange. You are going to have to give up who you once were in order to become who you are now because of who God made you to be because of the promise that he gave. The fruit of the Spirit, these things that are manifested, have nothing to do with the law. Against these things there is no law. For these things there is no law. 
These are things that are manifested as you rest in and receive the love of God for you. But understand something, when it comes to the law, if you are resting in, trusting in, being led by the law, the law stirs up sin, and all of these items that are listed here in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, these are things that are going to become manifested in your life because these are the fruit of the law in comparison to the fruit of the Spirit, which is manifested when you are led by the Spirit. So this is the summary. The summary of Galatians chapter 5 is that, first of all, you have been made into a new creation because of the gospel. You will inherit the kingdom of God because of the gospel, because that is the criteria. If you want to be evaluated under different criteria, such as these sins, I'm confident that the Lord will accommodate you if you are not saved. He will evaluate you and he will declare you to be one who will not inherit the kingdom of God, if that's the criteria that you want to use. He is proclaiming the contrast to say, look, if you want the law, this is what you get. This is what you're going to end up with. Choose the Holy Spirit. Choose being led by the Holy Spirit, because the other way is a dead end. The end is death. There is no other alternative. That was the purpose of the law, to lead you to the point of acknowledging this, of recognizing this. Now, I understand that this is a lot of content compacted into one space just because of the topic that I am addressing in this program. I have done a verse-by-verse series on the book of Galatians. I'd like to encourage you to listen to the series I produced on the book of Acts first, but I did do a verse-by-verse study on the book of Galatians where I addressed these verses individually, one by one, and I went through this topic with great detail. I also produced a verse-by-verse study on the book of Romans. These are all available for free in the radio archive at livinggodministries.net. Take the time to listen to those programs. I do not spend a lot of time talking about what the verses do not mean, like I am addressing in this series. In those programs, I do present what I believe they do mean. Ask the Lord to confirm to you the truth that is revealed. And I will continue in the next program. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,